In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, last summer, I had Leslie Bloom on the show to talk about her book, Everybody Behaves Badly, which gives the story behind the story of Hemingway's first big novel, The Sun Also Rises. On today's show, I talked to an author of another book about this landmark novel, who, instead of providing the historical context of The Sun Also Rises, explores the ideal of manliness Hemingway is trying to get at in the book. His name is Frank Miniter. He's a journalist and the author of previous books like The Ultimate Man's Survival Guide. His latest is called This Will Make a Man Out of You, One Man's Search to Find What Makes Men. And in this podcast, Frank and I discuss Hemingway's project of creating a new myth of manliness that combined traditional notions of masculinity with modern sensibilities, how Frank Sinatra killed the rugged gentleman and made cool a defining feature of modern manliness, and what the running of the bulls can teach us about rites of passages into manhood. We end our conversation talking about Hemingway's attraction to and repulsion from bullfighting and why the matador was Hemingway's ideal symbol of manliness. Great show. If you've read The Sun Also Rises, uh, you'll get a lot of great insights. If you haven't read the book, there's some spoilers in here, so you might want to read the book first uh, before you listen. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash you. Frank Miniter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Good to be here with you. Uh, so long been a fan of your work. Uh, you wrote a book, The Ultimate Guide, uh, Man's Guide to Survival or something like that. It came out at the same time as my book, my first book, The Art of Man's Classic Skills and Manners. So it was fun to see that. It's a really handsome looking book. You've written some other stuff, but your latest is one that I just absolutely loved because it's about a book, one of my all-time favorite books, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Um, and a few months ago, we had a gal on the podcast, um, who did sort of like the the history of that book, how it came to fruition of Hemingway's time um, in in Paris and what was there. But what I loved about your book is you really focused on Hemingway's exploration of manliness and his sort of code of manhood that he was trying to get at with The Sun Also Rises. And uh, you talked to a lot of scholars on Hemingway. You actually went to Paris. You went to Spain, did the running of the bulls that the sun also rises made um, famous. Um, so you just give these great insights that I never really thought of. So uh, start off, like what inspired you to do this exploration of the sun also rises and to go to Spain to do the running of the bulls and to watch bullfights? Yeah, right. I'm a journalist. And as you noted, I wrote the Ultimate Man Survival Guide. And that, that got into the question of, of what makes men through what are the skills a man should know and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that really, okay, that's the beginning of that conversation. I had a lot of people coming to me saying, okay, that's interesting and great. We enjoyed the book, but what really makes men? You know, What is it that creates character? What builds these people? What are we losing today? That, that's supposed to build people into, into all they want to be, to men all they're supposed to be. 
So I started asking that question of myself, and it's just a very philosophical and hard question to answer. And as I looked around, I, and I thought, okay, Ernest Hemingway was kind of the icon for manualists, especially in the early 20th century, but he was attacked, especially in the late 20th century, by the feminist movement and so on, as being a parody of what a man was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a chauvinist pig and all this. He did have four marriages and, and loved alcohol and these kinds of things. And they started to lampoon him and destroy him. And I thought, okay, if he's been attacked this much, first loved so much, his writing is still loved so much, but attacked so much, then there's a lot there. There's a lot in, in, in his writing and who he was and who he was trying to become about manliness, about answering that question. So let me start to investigate just for my own before I even start writing. Let me figure this out. So I started actually following that path and ended up with this crazy bunch of people, this wonderful bunch of people, uh, men and women, who follow that Hemingway Trail uh, every year from Paris to Pamplona, which is that route from the Sun also rises that, that those expats took on that pilgrimage. Um, so I, I ended up with this incredible group of people in the history of Paris, in the cafes of Paris, seeing that intelligent side that, that Hemingway was supposed to also personify. And he believed in that whole dichotomy of man where you were the sophisticate, yet you were the, the adventurer as well. One was not uh, without the other. You were that well-rounded ideal. And then we went to Spain and, and uh, ran with the bulls in, uh, in Pamplona and went through that whole intense run of passage. And I ended up finding out that there's just so much more there than I ever imagined, not just with the sun also rising, those characters and going where they, they were, but why Hemingway took us there and why he found so much depth in that place in those times. Uh, and, and it ended up turning into a book into a real answer to that question, what makes men? Yeah. We'll get into the, some of those insights that those uh, rituals or those rites of passage can teach us. But throughout the book, you said you were on the search for what you call the Hemingway man. Uh, and you mentioned just now that, you know, part of being a Hemingway man is uh, is being well-rounded, being a sophisticate, also this rugged adventurer. But what other attributes does a Hemingway man possess? Yeah, it's that grounded in, in something real, in something actual. It, it, it's why he was a hunter, in my opinion, and a fisherman. That, that's reality when, when you go hunting and you become actually a part of nature. Um, it might not be for everybody. I'm not making that argument, but it certainly is, is real. Uh, and those Spanish bulls that he also loved are real. Um, and he loved that, that ideal of the authentic life. And the only, the only way to get to the authentic life is to deal with reality. And we're dealing with generations now who interact more through social media and, and enjoy video games and other kind of pursuits, which are all fine and good. But if that becomes your reality, that's an alternate reality. That's not real reality. That doesn't shape someone into who uh, we really want them to be and who, into who they really want to be. Uh, it takes reality to do that. That's what the Hemingway man was all about. That's why he was real in those Paris cafes and why he was friends with Pablo Picasso and F. Scott Fitzgerald and a lot of those painters and writers of that age. But he also made fun of the cafe trash. He didn't like the posers, the fakers, the wealthy who came to that that part of Paris to live a certain bohemian kind of life because he saw them as fakes. They weren't really artists. They weren't really suffering to become what they wanted to become. They were faking it. They were wearing the clothes of it, but they weren't really becoming that thing. And so he ended up mocking those people and really being attacked in the end by those people, a lot of the critics uh, who you know those people became. Um, so it, what, what the Hemingway man really was and was supposed to be is somebody who bases himself on reality. Right, and that's why he sought out adventures his whole his whole entire life. Was an ambulance driver during World War One, did the hunting, boxed, fished, um, all sorts of adventures because it was it was real. Yeah, he went to war. He, he actually went into the Spanish War. He, as you noted, he went to World War One. Was an ambulance driver. He sought out those real adventures. 
Um, you know, he, the deep sea fishing, he went with his, you know, where he was actually looking for U-boats at one point in time. Uh, in World War II, he went back in, in a slightly controversial way, um, into when Paris fell back into the hands of freedom. You know, he liked to be at the cusp of all those things, the real things that developed character. It's why he said that a bullfighter was the only one who lived life all the way up because they were standing toe to toe with a bull who could kill them and does kill a lot of meditators. I've been in bullfights. I've seen uh, bullfighters uh, get get put down. It happens a lot. It, it's a very real experience. You know, say what you want about it. Uh, he was after that real experience, the authentic life. Right. And uh, earlier on in the book, you had this great dichotomy about um, you know the ideal of that ideal of manliness that Hemingway uh, captures. And our idea of manliness that we have today, and a lot of people have today in modern cultures, is the difference between being cool and the old school gentleman. And you said uh, this idea of cool uh, kills the old school gentleman. How did that happen? And can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I was I was quoting the late uh, Michael Kelly, who was, was killed in the, the war in Iraq, a journalist, a great writer. Um, he noted that, okay, Frank Sinatra was the king of cool. He was really our first big-time pop idol, right? And he came in after the smart set. In fact, he redid the smart set. The smart set believed before him, the Humphrey Bogart kind of ideal, was that you lived the right life. You, you were that stand-up person. And by being good, you were good, and you became all you were supposed to be. Well, he looked at that, and he said, well, wait a second. No, I'm the king of cool, and I'm personifying this idea where you know, if there's a fight that has to happen. You know, I have guys who will take care of that. And you've kind of stood back from what that was supposed to be, at least his image did. I don't think he really did as a person. But that became the image. And, and Michael Kelly noted that and said, wait a second, this killed the smart set. It no longer was cool to, to do the right thing. Now it was cool to do the wrong thing. Uh, it was a big shift in culture that led us to where we are today with pop culture moving this direction. You know, I, I would look back to James Dean and his iconic role, Rebel Without a Cause, as really as a part of that whole movement at the beginning of that. I mean, through that movie, he's James Dean is weak. I mean, he's this iconic, wonderful character in a great movie. But he's so weak and he keeps asking his father, what does it take to really be a man? And his father, through the whole movie, never has an answer for him, uh, which is what that movie is about. I mean, that's the theme. But you know, that's what, back in 1950s. And since then, we really haven't answered that question. At least our society, our mainstream society hasn't. So where Frank Sinatra took us, where Michael Kelly was noting, uh, that king of cool, cool killing what is supposed to be right and good, um, is, is where it's left us. And we need to, you know, guys like us who are trying to answer that question for ourselves and find the answers for people – need to get out there as we are um, to show people that, wait a second, being right and good and being that courageous, upstanding guy uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. That's actually who you want to be, being this, this sarcastic person who's kind of off to one side and who doesn't really get what that is, what that basis of them really is. They're lost and they're going to stay lost until they refine uh, what Hemingway was showing us. Right. Yeah. I feel like the, the culture of cool is just sort of an indifference. You don't want to appear like you're trying too hard. Um, because that's not cool. Like cool is just like, Hey, you're like the Fonz. Like you could just hit the jukebox with your elbow and everything happens na magically. Right. People back in the, in the, in the greatest generation, right? World War II, they went to war. All, all segments of society joined the military and went to war and fought for that cause. Now we're in a period in, in post Vietnam, you know, right, rightly so, where we no longer believe we can really fight for good. We can't really know what's good and wrong, right and wrong. You know, good and evil are not simple concepts the way they were to previous generations. So we're kind of lost in this moral relative universe. Um, people are searching for it, though. It's, it's here. Um, I think we could find our purchase again. Um, but it's going to be up to this generation to read and think, as we are, uh, to find these answers again. Because it's, it's there. And I, I think the people who, who are that stand-up person, who create that business and become that person they really wanted to be, 
are the are the type of people who have found that foundation under themselves. But how did Hemingway capture that idea of? Uh, you know, old the old school gentleman, the smart set. Because you know, one criticism or one you know, pe- people say that what Hemingway did, he he was very cynical about things like honor and war because of, because of his experience in World War One. And a lot of his characters, they seem a little detached from ideals because they've just been burned. Uh, but you argue in the book that it might appear like that on the surface, surface, but Hemingway was actually, I don't know, trying to capture those old ideals and somehow uh, make it a bit more modern. Yeah, he was trying to reform them into something that's palatable today. I mean, Joseph Campbell put this very well. He said, every generation has to create a new myth. And it's what the myth becomes is a way to finding that answer. That might be the same answer, but it's a way to understanding that answer because it's going to evolve over time as, as we evolve, as society evolves. I mean, Hemingway what, wrote The Sun Also Rises and published in 1926. I mean, women got the right to vote in 1920. You know, he was at a very different age than we're at, uh, but he was trying to look at those old ideals that have been dashed in World War I um, and say, how do we bring them forward? I mean, how do we take them and, and give them to this new generation? Now, we're several generations past that, but how do we find them again? What are they, and what are they, what are they supposed to be? Uh, you know, Hemingway's often been, a lot of writers have said it, a lot of uh, scholars who look at Hemingway have said that he was always in search of the code. He was kind of obsessed with the code, uh, even. You know, what is his code? He never really articulates it in a list of rules, um, but if you read his body of work, you find out that he absolutely was obsessed with a code, uh, based on things that he thought were authentic. And what, what were some of those things that were a part of his code? You know, being that stand-up guy, it's, it's back to his favorite metaphor of the bullfighter, right? Or, or, or the hunter in the, in the short, happy life of Francis Malcomer. In that story, Francis wounds a lion, and then when they need to go in and, and, and finish off that lion, which is a dangerous thing to do, he chickens out and runs away when the lion charges, and the, the professional hunter has to kill the lion. Well, then you have Francis without his manhood. And he has to refine his manhood. It, the only way he can do that is to stand up and prove himself physically again, which he does right at the end of the story with a charging Cape Buffalo. Okay, but he's a tragic figure. He gets killed uh, by his wife, shot in the back of the head in that story, uh, whether on purpose or not, Hemingway leaves open. But he gets killed. And a lot of Hemingway's heroes are like that. Santiago in The Old Man in the Sea catches the great fish, but it gets taken by sharks. You know, they're always losing these kinds of things. Whom the bell tolls, the hero gets killed in the end. The hero is always dying. Uh, or losing, as we're all going to, we're all mortal, we're all going to die. But he's making the point that you can't always decide what's going to happen in your life. You can't, always, you can't control very many things in your life. But what you can try to control is how you take it. So if you can stand up the way that bullfighter does to that charging bull and stand up with, full of courage and, and full of, not, not, to be, not to put down the bull or something, but to stand up to that ideal um, and, and keep your feet straight and your back straight and so on, um, then you're doing what's right. You're doing what we need because a man in a cri- a person in a crisis, man or woman in a crisis, who keeps their head, they're the ones who save a life. They're the ones who help us. They're the ones who stop the lynch mob and so on. Uh, that's the stand-up kind of guy he was pointing us towards with all these different metaphors. Right. He has that famous line um, about you know you're going to face defeat. That famous quote: "The world breaks everyone, and afterwards some are strong at the broken places." Like so, he really believed that sort of this this idea of the furnace of affliction that would make us stronger in the end. Right. He also said that you know, the thing that makes a writer is an unhappy childhood. You know, these kind of ideas that you do have to suffer in order to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the characters you, you talk about in The Sun Also Rises, is sort of a, a contrast to uh, Jake, the main character, who is sort of based off of Hemingway and his life, sort of bi- autobiographical, uh, is Robert Cohen. Um, 
and uh, he sort of exemplified the the complete opposite of Hemingway's code. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, throughout the book, Robert is is weak. Um, you know, he's he, he can't marry the woman he wants to marry, or, or the second woman, the woman he's dating in the beginning of the novel in Paris because he's too weak to do that. Um, he can't stand up to that ideal. Um, he ends up running away and having a, a little fling with the, the novel's heroine, Brett. Um, but then she she throws him off and just, you know, decides she's done with him and moves on to the next guy. And he keeps following her and haunting her and getting in the way and, and being making all the situations very uncomfortable because he's too weak to deal with that, to get over that as a man. Uh, and it's throughout the book. He even fights the bullfighter in the end because that bullfighter is then having an affair with, with Brett Ashley. And he can't stand that. And he keeps knocking down the bullfighter in the end of that book because – Robert was a boxer and knew how to fight, and the bullfighter did not. Um, but the bullfighter continually gets up again and again. I forget how many times he gets up, but it's so many times that finally Robert just can't hit him again. He just doesn't have the, the gumption to do it. He just thinks this is wrong somehow. You know, Robert is kind of stuck in this boyhood code where the toughest guy uh, on the street is is the man. Uh, he, he hasn't grown into that mature ideal of there's a time to fight and a time not to fight. And pretty much you shouldn't fight unless you're in, in self-defense. Uh, so he keeps knocking him down. The bullfighter just won't stop. So he runs into a guy living on a code, a guy who stands up to his own life. Um, and that's that a pretty deep metaphor for how a man should be. And when you contrast Robert with Jake and how they how they behave and how they treat people and how they forgive people, then you really see uh, what Hemingway is showing us about being a man. Right. And also Robert exemplifies as a great symbol of, like you said, he's, he's like stuck. He's like um, arrested development, right? He's still in adolescence because he, right. Right. I mean, he like he still he still talks about his glory days in college. Like, oh, I was this at Princeton. I was a championship boxer, blah, 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 blah. But like throughout the novel, he's always talking about, well, I want to go do this. Maybe I'm going to go to South America. Or maybe I'm going to like he's so he just talks about these abstractions. Right. But never gets down to living real life. Unlike Jake. He wants to go off to the purple land, the dreamland. Right. That he, that he read in a novel about about South America. And uh, yeah, the main character there, Jake, uh, basically Hemingway, is telling him that there's no such place, that if you want, want to live your life all the way up, start living it right here in Paris. You know, Start looking under your feet because the foundation is there, which becomes the vehicle for the whole novel because they go on a pilgrimage, which uh, I, I would argue, and, and, I, and Harry Stoneback does it very well, um, is really a religious pilgrimage. It's, it's far following a, 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 a pilgrimage um, to St. James. Uh, which has been a, a through, through the Middle Ages, it was a, a religious thing to go and find yourself on that long path uh, to the shrine at St. James. Yeah, well, let's talk about that in a bit. But yeah, I mean, that Robert Cohen, if you are a young man who's feeling uh, restless, like you just feel like you're, you're, you can't move on in your life, you need to read The Sun Also Rises, pay attention to Robert. You don't want to be like Robert. I mean, that, that's that's the thing. Never gotten that fight in high school. And I'm not saying we all should fight, but never physically proved themselves and are kind of stuck in this place. And if someone could just help them, if that right man was in their life to help them live up to who they want to become, they could just be, do anything. You just feel sorry for them and you want to help them. And most of them find their way eventually, but it would sure help them if they had the right mentor earlier. Right. Let's talk about this religious religious pilgrimage because like, I had no idea about this, um, the, the religious undertones behind the sun also rises, which doesn't make any sense because it begins with the Bible verse from Ecclesiastes. Um, but throughout the book, it's just infused with all this religious symbolism. So you talk about this pilgrimage they went on from Paris to Spain. It was who, who originally started that pilgrimage? Uh, it was a, a saint of some sort. Well, they're, they're going to see uh, one of the 12 apostles, St. James, uh, whose legend has it 
uh, his his body was moved uh, and buried uh, there at that that church at, at St. James. Um, so that's what the path is going to to see that shrine. Um, but the it's really about the pilgrimage, not so much about actually you know kneeling down at that shrine. Um, it's that pilgrimage. It takes two to three months, depending on what path you take, uh, walking uh, that path. That through nature, through that whole experience, um, it's supposed to shape you, and you're supposed to then find yourself and your purpose in life. Um, so that's what that has always been about, and that's what he was taking those people on um, through that novel. Right. So Jake was the one leading these um, these lost generation guys to this pilgrimage. So hopefully they would find themselves along the way. And he never preaches. He never tells them that. And this, that's a lot, a lot of the reason why it's lost. I mean, it was Hemingway's theory of omission, uh, you know, that iceberg, you know, 90% of it's underwater. Um, and it's beautiful because it, it, the depth is there and you can feel it, but you're not being hit over the head with it. And he practiced that in The Sun Also Rises. So that's why a lot of people do miss it. Yeah, I mean, I, I missed it completely. Um, but I think another thing you talk about is Hemingway's Catholicism and how it influenced. So he was born a Protestant, correct? And you later converted, converted to Catholicism? Right. He converted uh, during the second marriage. And, and how did that influence his writing after uh, his conversion? You know, I don't think it did. I, I think it's the Protestant upbringing that influenced him throughout his life. Uh, third into to Catholicism, he was divorced from Hadley and he joked, you know, I don't know how serious he was when he said this, that he became impotent, um, really from, from guilt, um, from cheating on uh, and then divorcing his first wife and marrying Pauline Pfeiffer. And sometime during that period, his, his second wife said, well, okay, why don't you go to this chapel, the Catholic, she was Catholic, go to the chapel, convert, um, ask for forgiveness for your sins. Uh, maybe that'll bring your mojo back, which he does. He, he goes and he converts and, and he, he, gets, he gets forgiven for his sins. Um, and he says from then on, he could, you know, he could keep, you know, he could, he was a king of bed. I forget how he put it exactly in a very uh, coarse kind of way. You know, everything with, with Hemingway was always that kind of, if he wasn't conquering something outside of himself, he was conquering himself. Um, and, and fine. But I don't think that Catholicism in that way shaped him or changed him. I don't think he was a very devout kind of guy, but he grew up as a Protestant, as a Christian, um, with, with very religious mother, especially. Um, and so he learned the tenets to that early on. And he sought those answers. When he, even when he was in Paris, he, he, he found scholars, and I quote some of this in the book, he found scholars who taught him about that pilgrimage that, that he ended up taking the, the fictional characters on um, in The Sun Also Rises. Um, so he found the purchase for it. So the depths of it were there, but I don't think it was as much Catholicism. It was just his childhood upbringing. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. 
And now back to the show. And then, yeah, speaking to Hemingway's, uh, you know, he's had, was married four times. I think it's interesting. He always got a new wife before he started a new book. Like he always divorced the wife when he finished the book and then he got a new one when he started a new one. Um, all right, so let's talk about the, um, the Running of the Bulls, this festival in Pamplona, Spain. This, Hemingway is the, the guy that made this famous because I think before The Sun Also Rises, very few people knew about it. It was primarily um, a festival that the people in Spain took part in, the Bosques. Um, so what's the history behind The Running of the Bulls? I mean, wh- when did it start and why did, they, why did they do this thing where they have bulls chase them in the street? Yeah, it, it grew through the 17th, 18th centuries. Um, they combined two festivals, uh, oh, late 16th or 17th century, um, a religious festival with a fair um, in, into one time frame that became the San Fermins, the, the, the festival we know. And they were taking to the, bull, the bulls to the arena uh, through that 17th and 18th century. And people just started going with the bulls. It was kind of a, here come the bulls, let's follow them. And it just kind of developed into this run, into this test of yourself by going with these fighting bulls down the street. And this isn't the only one in Spain. There's a lot of them in Spain, actually. This is just the most famous. Uh, this is actually a very normal rite of passage for, for Spanish youth. And as is get, getting in the, into the ring uh, with the vaquillas, so those, horn, uh, those cows with lever on their horns, which Hemingway did do, because Hemingway actually didn't run with the bulls. So it grew out of all that through, through those centuries. Um, the time Hemingway found that it was a very mature uh, fiesta, um, and he was there and witnessed it, and he couldn't believe it. I mean, he wrote some early uh, uh, stories for, for the newspaper he was then writing for, um, the, the, the Toronto Star, um, where he talks about it. And he was more, you read that again, and it's kind of, he's shocked about it all. He's surprised. He's kind of following the crowd here and there, and he can't believe it. And that's when he became addicted to it. And then he came back again and again and learned about it and ended up writing about it more and, of course, wrote the, the great novel. Right. I mean, what's your experience with the running the bulls? How many times have you done it? I've been in the street 13 times with the Bulls, um, and I've had a couple of very close calls, but I haven't been injured. Um, I've run every section of it. I, I've been very lucky. As a journalist, I've always been been taught, I mean, find a mentor, right? Find someone who can teach you because you're trying to write about it. And you need experts, right? So find that expert. And I found a guy named Juan Macho. That's actually his real name. He's a Cuban, uh, moved to Miami when he was 12 years old. He still lives in Miami. Um, but he was just drawn to this, this fiesta, uh, being a lover of Hemingway himself and Hemingway a scholar himself um, in the early 1980s. And he's been running every year since then. He's run well over 100 times uh, with the Bulls. Um, and in the last decade or so, he started to take people um, under his wing. He wants to teach them. He's found that a lot of Americans, especially, uh, but a lot of foreigners come in there. And they don't know how to run with the Bulls. It's a real test. And the Spanish know about this, but they don't know how to do it. So they end up doing stupid things in front of the Bulls and really getting hurt when it wasn't necessary to get hurt. So he he became my mentor and showed me how to run with the bulls. Um, but of course he put me in the street my first time all by myself because he says you face your mortality alone. And you, when you go through something, especially that first time running with the bulls, because what, what you have to do is you have to enter the street at 7.30 in the morning because they're gonna close the barriers at 7.30, but the bulls don't come until eight o'clock in the morning. Um, this happens eight days in a row. So you're waiting there for 30 minutes for those bulls to come. And around you in the beginning of that, everyone's kind of boastful and excited and we're gonna do this and that with the bulls because the street's always more than half full of first time runners. Um, but as it gets closer to eight o'clock and that rocket's going to go off and the bulls are going to come out and run down that street, uh, you see people start to fall apart. And I, I, and I wrote about this in the book. My first time running, a guy next to me from Chicago was boasting about what he was going to do. By the time it got close to eight o'clock, he was losing it. He kept picturing himself being disemboweled by a bull. And he decided, I have to get out of here. I have to get out of the street. And he tried to go under the fence to get out of the street. And a Spanish cop kicked him back into the street, looked at him and said, you wanted to be a man and run with the bulls? 
Now you must be a man and run with the bulls. They don't let you out of that street once once they close those barriers, and they do that for a reason. Because if people try to pile out, and they, they panic and try to get out of that street, you'll end up with a log jam in the street, and these bulls will come hit, and will hit that log jam. They have forward-facing horns. I mean, there's 12, 1,500-pound bulls with forward-facing horns. If there's a if there's a big knot in the street, they're going to kill people. So they're, they're doing that for everyone's good, actually, but this person didn't understand that. And he went under the, uh, the barrier for a second time, and this time the cop didn't get around. He just hit him, boom, 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 put him down. And I'll bet you he spent that night in a Spanish jail. That cop was showing us. He was kind of kind of the drill sergeant to our, to our real rite of passage there, showing us you had to stand up. Now you're in the street, now you got to stand up, and you got to be a man. So yeah, you said earlier that this, this running the bulls is, is a rite of passage uh, for Spanish youth. It used to be primarily uh, for men, but now uh, women. Like there was a time when women couldn't do it, but now women can. But, but, but a major theme throughout the book, and um, as you followed Hemingway's footsteps, uh, is this idea of a rite of passage. You know, from your experience of following Hemingway from Paris to Spain and doing the running of the bulls, what did you learn about what makes for an effective rite of passage into manhood? Yeah, this is what I did with the table of contents and the whole structure of the book, because this is so key. And, it, and I went through this in military school, and, and, I, and I've talked to people um, who've, who've gone through uh, special forces and for, uh, became New York firefighters and, and all sorts of, 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 type of occupations that have real rites of passage. And they're always kind of the same way. They're always the same structure, and it's really interesting. They're first designed to, to, to scare the heck out of you somehow, to reset you, um, to, to take you down a notch um, so they can, they can build you up into what you really need to become through this rite of passage. And, and running with the bulls, that first one, of course, is that first time you run. It just tears you up. You can't believe how much it changes you. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Um, but, but so is good. You know, if you go to, to boot camp, which is a really classic kind of rite of passage that follows this kind of structure – you know, that first day when you have a drill sergeant yelling at you and you had your hair shaved off and you go through that whole metamorphosis of yourself, uh, you also go through that, that, that first trial by fire where you, you, okay, now you've been burned down and you've got to be built back up. Then it starts to build you up. You need a guide. There always has to be a guide in any real rite of passage. And then you need a gauntlet that it will take you through, that you prove yourself through step by step. Because, you know, one time running with the bulls is great. I think it's wonderful. A lot of people just do it once and they walk away from it. And they're, they're, they've got a great cocktail story to tell. Um, and they're probably a little bit changed by it. But it's not what really grew them up into something. You know, dealing with the, the people that I know through, through this now who've run again and again hundreds of times with the Bulls, um, it's, it slowly changes them and builds them, and, and, and they find their courage through it. Um, and they learn to respect the Bulls very deeply because of this. Um, you know, they don't molest the Bulls in the street, for example. If you do that, that's breaking the code that's beneath it. It's also part of the big rite of passage. Every rite of passage has a code. If you molest a Bull, he's going to turn around in that street and he's really going to hurt people. You grab his tail, you do something to him. So there's a, there's a code to it, and every rite of passage, there's always a code uh, beneath it. you got to find that code, and then you have to live up to that code, and that's what every rite of passage does, and this certainly does. As you go through, go through this process, at the end of it, you respect the bulls, you understand why you're doing it, you learned your courage through it, and you walk away a very different person, which is always what, what a rite of passage was supposed to do, to build a boy into a man, or, or, or now a, a girl into a woman. I mean, it's wonderful now that, that women run with the bulls as well. Yeah, this idea of the code and respecting it. I think when people, outsiders, look at the running of the bulls and bullfighting in Spain, they think this is sort of um, just, it's barbaric, right? But like there is this like very serious code that you must follow. And if you do not follow it, there are serious repercussions. Like you talk about the vaquillas, is that what they're called? Like the the cows that go into the arena, uh, they have leather horns and um, you can kind of run away from them, but you're not supposed to like touch them. And what happens if you do mess with them? 
Yeah, if you molest a vaquilla, which I, I saw firsthand right in front of me, people who just didn't know the rules tried to jump on them and grab their tails and so on. Uh, the, the Spanish mozos, the Spanish guys there who into this kind of thing, they will literally beat the hell out of you um, in a way that would get them arrested in America and have lawsuits and shut down the whole thing. But no one will stop you in the crowd. There'll be 20,000 people watching when this happens. Because what happens is, okay, you run the bulls. And if you want to, you can run all the way into the arena. And then they close the, the, the barrier behind you and the bulls go out. And then they let these vaquillas in one by one, which these things travel town to town. It's like rodeos, right? The bulls, they, they travel town to town. These, these vaquillas travel town to town. Um, and they know how to throw people. You can't fool them with a cape or something because they know. They know how to get the person. So if you watch it from above, you'll see people just popping up over and over again as these vaquillas run circles around yelling everybody, which is a classic Spanish rite of passage. But you're right. If you break that code, you molest that vaquilla. Boy, I've seen a couple of people get put in the hospital. I mean, just totally taken down and beaten down uh, for breaking that code. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's a strong sense of honor that you have to follow. And if you do not follow it, you will be shamed and possibly physically beat. Right. And, and a lot of the Americans I talk to don't understand that. And they, they how dare they? How, how can they possibly do this? When you go through all this process of explaining to them, well, there's a reason why they're doing all this, then they go, oh, okay. And they just didn't know. They didn't understand that. I think an interesting point, too, you make about rites of passage is that it's not a, a one and done thing. I think a lot of guys, I get a lot of men who, who've written me, it's like, I, I never had a rite of passage uh, into manhood. Um, and I, they try to go seek it out through some sort of vision quest or they do some sort of adventure. And I think a lot of them, they think that's going to be the thing that's going to make them feel like a man, but then they come back sort of disappointed and let down because it didn't. Um, but I think it might be because like you can't just do one. It's not a one and done thing. You're always developing your character. There, there are certain Native American tribes that used to, used to earn a new name uh, as you went through life and you proved yourself according to this new rite of passage you went through. Uh, that was a real direct way of saying what you were, were trying to do. But yeah, as you go through life, you're going to find there's different ones. Understanding the rules, this is why I went to such pains to explain them in the table of contents and the structure of my book. Uh, it, it helps you find them. It helps you understand them. It helps you grow through them. But yeah, you're going to run into different ones as you go, hopefully through life, different challenges as you, as you each time try to grow up into a new ideal. Uh, if you're going to stop in time somewhere, well, that's your choice. But then you become just a case of arrested development like we were talking about earlier. You know, that person who still talks about their, their glories as the quarterback in high school. Uh, you know, you have to move on to the next thing and, and the next challenge and grow up into that new one. That's, that's what being a man is all about. Right. So constantly seek out rites of passage. It's not a one and done thing. Um, let's talk about bullfighting because this was interesting. It's, it's a, an extremely controversial sport um, for obvious reasons. But can you give us a little bit of the background of bullfighting? Like why do the Spanish, why do Spanish cultures have bullfighting? Where did that originate from? Well, you can go all the way back to the Romans when they fight bulls in the amphitheater. But they were doing it, which is still done in Spain. They were doing it on horseback with spears. Um, but in, in the 15th century, um, somebody came along who I think they were actually knocked off their horse. Um, and someone ran out to save them with, with a piece of cloth and end up keep keeping that bull off of them until they saved him. And that they, they kind of got that idea. Wait a second. This is what we can do. And then you ended up with some people trying it, and it became a famous way of, of fighting the bulls, um, actually on your feet with that cape and then killing them with a sword, uh, which is a lot more heroic than doing it on horseback. Uh, so it, it developed slowly um, over a long period of time, but it, it's, you know, you look at it now, and it's, it's what, four or five centuries old at least, 
um, with, with a lot of pomp and a lot of, uh, you, if you go to, if you go to one in Spain, you know, it's, it's full of music. It, it's, it's, it's set up in a very regimented way, um, a very choreographed way, um, where that bull comes in and he goes through three steps. I mean, Hemingway looked at this and he said, I'm not going to defend bullfighting. Bullfighting isn't a, a sport. It's a tragedy. And he's right. It, it's a great tragedy played out right before your eyes. It's a hunter killing his game. I mean, it's any of us who, who, well, any of us who live on this planet, I don't care if you're a vegetarian, because if you're, you're a vegetarian, uh, you're still eating vegetables. And some farmer has to protect those crops in order to grow them. In order to protect those crops, he still has to kill deer or mice or geese or something that's, that might be eating on eating his crops. If not, he's just going to be growing crops for those for that, for that wildlife. So we're all a part of this system. This Bullfighting is just a very loud and visual way of seeing that, it's putting it right in front of your eyes and showing you and celebrating that, that circle of life that we're all, we all are a, a part of. You know, my first bullfight, I sat there, and as a longtime hunter and stuff, you think I wouldn't, I'd be immune to this, but I sat there and I was in tears my first bullfight. Uh, it was so emotional for me, um, where I literally had an old Spanish woman in front of me who was giving me some cakes and some wine and stuff before the bullfight started. And then by the time it started, I was in tears, and the guy next to me is, is also upset. We're two Americans in our first bullfight. And she turns to us and looks at us and goes, oh, you're just like all the rest of the Americans. You're just so weak. You can't handle this reality. And, and, and you know, she had a point. At the, per, at the time, I thought, well, what does she mean? And it took a long investigation for me as an American who grew up in the American culture to understand what they were trying to show us. So as I look at it now, I think it's a, it's a celebration of life, actually, uh, with that bull dying, a bull that really wouldn't even exist. It's bred for this purpose if it wasn't for bullfighting. Um, but I, th- I think if somebody watches it and tries to understand it, and has a problem with putting this kind of death of that bull on display for, for applause from a Spanish audience. Um, okay, I can understand that, that viewpoint, I, and I, I could be against. I could see them being against it as long as they're trying to understand it. But unless they're trying to understand it and they're just opposed to bullfighting, then okay, they're knocking down a culture they don't understand, and, and they really need to open their eyes and educate themselves. I mean, so what are some of the things that people misunderstand about bullfighting, or maybe the ethics of bullfighting? Yeah, it's it's that death of the bull that gets them, and it is bloody. Um, you know, they, they, the picadors come out first, and and so on, and it, it starts to bleed. They're weakening the neck by literally bleeding the bull's neck um, until it, it, it's not picking its head up high enough. So the guy, in the end, after all, all the runs with the cape and all that, he can kill it with the sword. Um, which to kill it with a sword, it, it takes a perfect thrust over the top, down through the chest into, into the heart, heart area. Um, so that bull just goes down and dies immediately. But what happens is, if that if that matador doesn't do it perfectly, if he's not pulled off, if he's especially messing up the end with the sword, but whatever he's doing, or he's showing cowardice in the arena, whatever he's doing, he's failing as the ideal that he's supposed to be. And he's not killing as cleanly as he's supposed to. That Spanish crowd, I mean, they will go nuts. They will start hissing. They'll start throwing their seat cushions uh, in the extreme. Uh, the governor of it will actually pull that bullfighter out and really embarrass him. Uh, someone else have to go in and kill that bull. Um, you're supposed to go in and do it ethically and cleanly and, and quickly when it comes down to actually doing the kill. So there's a whole code beneath how that's supposed to happen, showing deep respect for that animal. And But I understand that it's hard for somebody not of that culture to understand that this is actually respect for the bull by killing the bull this way. I mean, all these bulls are eaten. I've eaten the bulls that I've seen killed in the arena. Um, you know, But it's just hard for someone to understand that, just as it's hard for someone – who doesn't hunt understand hunting? I mean, how could somebody kill a deer or a bear or whatever and then be seen in the picture smiling with that dead animal, even though they can eat the animal later? That to them, as a non-hunter, that that's kind of an appalling idea. Um, but I challenge people to understand the nature of the world we live in and who they are um, and the whole process to the thing before they condemn something they really just don't understand. Right. So bullfighting brings it's, it's all about bringing reality back and putting it right in front of us. Front of us. There's cows getting slaughtered. 
like all the time that you eat in your prepackaged, you know, container, saran wrap container. Um, and here's this is how it's done. You need to see this, basically. I actually jumped down with Juan once, right when they after they killed the last bull, and got into the place in Pamplona there uh, at the Plaza de Toros, to where they cut up the bulls and got to meet the guys. And they do it fast, and they they, they put them up, and it's it's like seeing beef taken out. Boom, 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 boom. It, it gets cut up, and it's being sent to the to the restaurants there in Pamplona. So you see that whole process and each each part of it, and you realize that yeah, they're they're showing us in a very visual display that we're all connected to the world we live in. Right. And then going back to this idea of man, manhood and, you know, uh, Hemingway said that the, the matador is like probably the, the ideal of manliness because it just as you were describing it, they're on display in front of everyone. And if they don't do it right, if they don't follow the code, they're going to be shamed uh, and booed and hissed out of there and possibly taken out, which is just even more shameful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's that, that connection of bullfighting and just trying to show this ideal of Spanish manliness in a very visceral upfront way. Yeah, it's public. It's on display. Um, and if they show the least bit of cowardice in that arena or don't kill cleanly, um, if they don't follow that code to the ideal, um, yeah, that, that they'll, they'll go right down uh, in, a, in a huge embarrassment and maybe they'll be hurt badly in the process. Right. So going back to this idea of codes, uh, we talked about Jake's code. We talked about Robert's lack of code. Um, but I feel like we live in a culture today where we sort of look down on codes of honor with uh, skepticism and cynicism. Why do you think that is? Well, one reason is we see them as being too simplistic. We don't really believe anymore that a person could be heroic in the sense they're fighting for something good because we don't believe a person can know what's good, what's right and what's wrong. We used to believe that, that we knew that was a relig- religious idea, but we believed we could fight for good. Uh, we've lost that idea. And, and there's some good from that because it's led to a lot of depth. But then you put a code of honor in front of somebody, and I put a lot in the back of this book for this reason, um, and they look at it as just being too simplistic. But when I look at it, I say, yeah, but you're trying to articulate a foundation for yourself. So you look at these codes and you try to develop your own code, which I, I think every man should do, because uh, no one of these codes is going to be relevant to, to themselves. They have to write their own and think about this process. Then when you find yourself in those situations in life, um, your, your first reaction if you follow this code, will be to do the right thing because you've already established who you are and what you're living up to. Um, so that's what a code always did. But their society thinks they're too simplistic. They're tearing them down. But they also look at them, look at those knight's codes and the code of Bushido and the gentleman's code. And they think, they look back at them, especially in this feminist idea, they look, look at them and they see them perpetuating a certain um, chauvinistic kind of ideal. Um, you know, that gentleman of the 19th century um, who repressed women. And, you know, as I said, women didn't get the right to vote until 1920. I mean, they're still fighting for some of their rights. So, you know, they, they look at that and they, they say, oh, you're, you're trying to push us back to some kind of ideal from before and bring these chauvinist uh, values back up. And we don't want to live back in that society. You know, we've reached a new one. When I say, wait a second, if you really look at codes and look at how they developed, you notice that codes really became purified in the early 20th century uh, during the feminist movement. Um, and in the 1930s, 1940s, you could see that clearly in film, uh, where they, they became l- much less, the, the chauvinism dropped, the racism was, was dropping away, it was becoming clean, they were becoming good, and right at that same time, we decided codes were, codes were useless because they were pointing backwards. Well, I say, wait a second, write your own code, look forward, make a better code, make a code that isn't racist and sexist and all these kinds of things, and fine. Of course, but, but I think also, if you look back at those codes, you won't find the racism and sexism written in those codes, even the code of Bushido, the old Japanese samurai's code, said everyone is inherently equal. 
You know, that was, you know, Samurai is actually saying that. Um, so they always saw that ideal as well. Um, but I think today we have to understand that again, refashion that to ourselves and understand you can have that basis again. Without that basis, I don't see how you could possibly be the stand-up guy you want to be. So we, we said earlier that Hemingway was uh, trying to fashion a new myth, a new ideal of manliness, this sort of uh, a look to the old codes while uh, transforming it and making it new. What do you think that ideal looks like? What do you think Hemingway, what did Hemingway end up creating through that sort of metamorphosis that he was trying to do? Yeah, you feel it through all of his literature. Um, and it's it's this guy, and, it, and it's Jake, and it's hard to put your finger on Jake in The Sun Also Rises, that main character, because he'll never come right out and say. He's showing instead of saying what he's living up to. I mean, he, there's several times in that book where he, he takes Brett to different chapels to pray, and she feels uncomfortable doing that. But to him, that, that's the old values. Um, you know, the whole the, the Roland that I talk about, the, the ancient myth, uh, the song of Roland, uh, is behind a lot of the Hemingway's writing. Um, and it, there's a reason for that. That was the myth, one of the, the chief mythological knights became mythologized in, in the Song of Roland uh, from the Middle Ages. It was their ideal through the Middle Ages of that stand-up person living this upstanding, uh, bigger way. So Jake is trying to show that to the characters and, and, and so on, uh, but he never comes right out and says it. And I don't think Hemingway ever decided to come out and preach that kind of thing. You know, it, even reading all, all through his letters, you see him telling you how to behave but never really telling you, never really spelling it out. Here's the rules you have to follow. Let me just show you, stand up to yourself, be courageous. Um, how you take life, which is his chief metaphor on everything, how you take what comes to you. If you could take up, take it as that stand up guy, um, then you're going to grow into the ideal you want to be. And it's understanding then what's around you, what's underneath you in that process that will grow you into the man you want to be. Well, Frank, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about, but uh, where can people learn more about the book and your work? Oh, this will make a man of you is on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble, uh, really wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find me at frankminitier.com. I, I also write a column, a uh, weekly column for Forbes. Um, you can go to Forbes.com and find me there. Um, so I'm all over the place. Fantastic. Well, Frank Minitor, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Frank Minitor. His book is This Will Make a Man Out of You. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find more information about Frank's work at frankminitor.com. Also, make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash manofyou, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.